everyone. I just want to preface this installment of Talks with Tay with a few excuses slash explanations for why it takes me so long to be consistent with my new additions to this podcast series. For one, editing is a bitch and there's so much time and effort that goes into it that I never quite uh, plan well enough for and in this sense this is very much an excuse because I know how to plan for things I just usually don't and this is one of the things that I don't often plan for um however I hope that you all enjoy the latest episode that is about to uh subsequently play after this little announcement here um because it's it was something that I enjoyed recording um with someone who I don't really see very often and in it we discuss um a lot of things including this concept of white allyship um when it comes to the development of social movements and uh the place and role that certain people are playing in it and the the social construct of whiteness on the whole the abolition of whiteness as a social construct that has maintained this history uh, and operation intended to be oppressive toward anything that goes against it in the sense that it is not white. And we also get into how policing goes into that, uh, group identity, and the gains of, group, of power, uh, protection, and authority within group identity, especially when you're talking about establishments such as the police. Uh, we also, in the second part of this installment of Talks with Tay, talk about um, the actions of the Democratic Party, uh, the martyrdom of George Floyd, and the mystification of Black people and very real human rights issues, uh, rather than having those things stand out as concrete evidence of problems in the real world, somehow they often become just that, mystified and presented as otherworldly rather than very much a part of the society we're living in at present very much a part of our reality and those are just a few of the things that we we talk about in this episode and i hope you all enjoy it i definitely enjoyed making it as i said before all right for the second installment of the Talks with Tay podcast. Um, I'm your host, Tay Johnson, yep. and today we are joined by a friend we studied abroad together. Um, he's an amazing guy. He was probably one of the first people to give me a straight answer about what communism is, and I have been chatting him up ever since. Could you tell everyone about yourself, Jay? Yeah, yeah. I'm doing great. Um, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to do this. I'm looking forward to it. It's taken us a while to schedule it, but I'm happy to actually be here. Uh, one of the favorite people that I met in England, um, and I have, you know, seen a lot of what the stuff you've been doing since then. Really been impressed by everything you've been able to accomplish uh, and everything you're you know, working on and doing. By myself, you know. I feel like we've got along. I'm an organizer. That's kind of how I understand myself to be uh, most initially. And I have worked, been working out with like abolitionist groups uh, all across the East Coast, uh, 
in particular, like hashtag Philly. That's partly why we like, you know, had a lot of great conversations about like race, reparations, things like that. I worked with the Grass Reparations Campaign and the Truth Telling Project, as well as the Harrisburg Abolition Table, uh, which is an organization in Harrisburg, PA, that focuses on uh, restorative justice uh, when dealing with the carceral system, as well as uh, incarceration uh, as a um, colonial project, as well as dealing with the police and other illegal systems, because where I come from is very much a carceral town. Apart from that, I consider myself an artist, a creative, a speaker, a writer, someone who uses their various forms of media to express certain ideas and try to push for a more social, justice-minded future. As you can see, he's a very long, impressive um, resume. I wouldn't even say a resume, like it's uh, honestly just a life's work. Yeah. And you're what, like, do you mind disclosing your age? Yeah, I'm 23. Twenty-three years. Yeah, I don't know how to turn it off. <laughs> I think um, it's important to stay busy, and it's good that you've been staying busy. Um, mm -hmm. You know, with good work. Yeah. Um, which is like a compository, I think is the word. Yeah. Of information and yeah. intellect. Mm -hmm. um, humbly call himself just an organizer, but I, I have experience as an organizer, and I think he does even more than that. Mm -hmm. um, and as I also said previously, um, I feel like he is a wonderful credit to uh, a lot of where I am today, like is particularly when it comes to like the thought process um, and how I've been able to surround myself with people now who not just think similarly, but um, provide more for me to think about. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, that's all I have to say about Jay. Yeah, and I'd say the um, same thing about you as well, because like, I'm very much a person who, I start to form it. First off, sometimes, I'd say like two thirds of the time or a third of the time, I am figuring out a lot of what I believe as I'm speaking it, right? Mm -hmm. Because I already have the ideas in my head, but really when, I, I have my principles, but there's, you know, an ever-shifting landscape. There is a lot of nuance, there's a lot of you know, complexities considered, and a lot of the times, you really don't even if you have specific you know ideas and like you know values that you hold on to don't necessarily how always see how they play out until you have a conversation with somebody else and you see what you know like what who doesn't necessarily it doesn't stay tenable what you know butts up you know what head you know butts up against another head and like what gives you some kind of you know tension and i think that in that tension is that, that's where that truth comes right it's like it actually is less about when everyone's on the same page and more about when you kind of start a deviation right and that's actually kind of what i want to talk about we were talking you know off the record about um like when white allies have kind of gotten to a point where they are a bit more self-aware they are realizing you know and almost going depressed in their conversations about like um realizing like how white supremacy is ingrained in us and how it becomes gets to a point where it becomes so all-encompassing um, that it almost feels like inescapable, right? And I think that what we were kind of referring to is like people who have got, become so self-aware that uh, they are almost, what it sounds like to me is these conversations that I have where white people are trying to escape whiteness and not in the sense of escaping the responsibility of whiteness. We're not talking about people who were saying, oh, I'm colorblind or I don't see race. It's not no. that kind. It's actually the opposite when people are recognizing that the outcome of white supremacy and what it has done, not just to people that it's oppressed, but also 
to the oppressors, right? Um, there is a lot of conversation, like a lot of Marxist thinkers talk about this aspect of like trauma that is caused by being in an oppressor situation, like an oppressor um, um, class. Obviously, it's worse to be oppressed than be an oppressor, but the, the action of, of being an oppressor is so dehumanizing. It is so um, hurtful to the people who are doing it. Now, this is also another thing that I was talking about before that I think is exploring is this like conversation about the like the people who are grappling with their whiteness, right? Mm -hmm. um, they are getting to a point, I think, where we're, this, which is, we're having this basic national conversation, where and not even a national, it's like a, it's like a, it's an ongoing historical conversation of white people in this in this you know in this country that's been had in whispers and spurts for years as a necessity of what whiteness is, mm -hmm. um, but it's only really now coming to the forefront. I think people are realizing, they're getting to a point where they are reckoning with the abolition of whiteness, mm -hmm. which is a concept that when I heard it, I, at this point I would already consider myself an abolitionist, but when I heard heard it like spit that way, I immediately just kind of recorded. I was like, wait, that first off, like that seems kind of it. Like, I, Really, had, I found it repulsive, like as a concept at first, just because I didn't really know, I didn't understand what it was being, how it was being positive, and I hate like a lot of just like very exaggerative, like very just like whitey, like you know, kind of like uh, concepts, like screw whitey concepts, just as like uh, that's not my policy, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, I'll go into detail about why I don't like that as a as a strict policy by itself, mm -hmm. as a feeling that I have constantly when dealing with white people. That's a whole other story. Like there's a lot of times I'm like, man, can't get like these crackers need to get out of here. Like I'm done. Like I just need to. I need. I need to that just to end. But um, as a politic, I'm not really about it. Mm -hmm. But then, when, and then my second response was this idea of kind of like, well, no, like we sh white people should reckon with their whiteness. It mm -hmm. should be a thing that you, you you deal with. And then as I actually understood more about it, I realized what they're actually talking about is not the idea of like, oh, being ashamed or, or trying to like get out of being a white person but to actually grapple with the project of whiteness and what it's designed to do, which is essentially to negate and to ab like absorb all kinds of difference and then set up a antagonistic relationship with anything that is considered non-white. Right. Which is, yeah, no, we should get rid of that. And I think white people are getting to a point now where they are, they've been doing the work, they've been, or at least white allies, a minority of really true white, and I wouldn't even call them white allies, accomplices who are really grappling with the nature of whiteness and coming to the very uncomfortable conclusion that you really cannot keep it around if you want to this country to survive or this country or this people this nation this this group of people or whatever you call it because again as we're talking before it is a, a myriad of things it's a mosaic of, of regions and cultural like context uh, if we are going to move forward as a society we really have to get rid of it. We have to answer the, the questions around race. And that might mean just getting rid of whiteness as a thing. Right. Everything prior to this has been about this conversation about moving towards a kind of progress, a, a, a goal of an equity. This idea that like white people and black people will at one point be able to live in like, you know, this multicultural diversity where we are all on the same plane, we all take from each other and giving to each other and we're gonna live <clears> in <throat> harmony. And we're realizing now we cannot do that. We, I think, this last years have shown that, like, not that we let people like to get along, but the idea of that kind of—if it's centered around sameness, then no. Yes, like exactly. it's not going to work. 
it, this country's not built for it. It cannot. No country is built for it. Like, the world isn't built for sameness, mm -hmm. right? Like, yeah. so that concept, you gotta chuck it out the window. Yeah. Now, when you, this, I, did you, I, I'm sure you didn't conclude your thought, but I do want to, like, make sure that uh, I mentioned that I definitely um, wanted to rebuttal about the abolition of whiteness. Like, because my initial response to that was, it was a conclusion that I also came to without ever, I don't think I've ever heard anyone else say it like that. Mm -hmm. Um... It was a conclusion that I came to as, as I was thinking about whiteness as a social construct, right? And it's like, if you frame it that way, then it's like, okay, this doesn't sound like I'm just like, kill whitey. Like, yeah, it's yeah. not like that. It's, it's very much an intellectual thought process that I have sat with and I'm like, okay, if this is the problem, then having it not be a thing is clearly a solution. Mm -hmm. um, however, uh, one, people don't want to have that conversation because a lot of people feel defensive about whiteness mm -hmm. or whatever. And they're like, why is it bad to be white? Mm -hmm. And it's like, you don't understand that it's not about, that, at that point, it's really not about color. It's about an operation. Mm -hmm. yep. um, mm -hmm. Now, another thing, though, that I, that I feel needs to be, like, is another elephant in the room, mm -hmm. is how there are people who are of color who uphold whiteness as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. you won't need white people who literally look physically, quote-unquote, white mm -hmm. um, to uphold white structures. Mm -hmm. There are people who are going to gatekeep whiteness who are not white as well, especially in America. Mm -hmm. um, or any... I don't say especially in America. It's the most pervasive in America. Like, you can, this is right up in your face. Yes. Um, and people do it to this day, but the that is how whiteness would survive, mm -hmm. I think. Like, to look at, um, again, the conversation we had off mic uh, about uh, Palestine, right? If you turn a Jewish person or an Israeli person and a Palestinian person, put them in, you know, in Philly, right? Well, you drop them right here right now. Um, there would be a question mark about whether or not like they count what, what what how you would function them in in, in whiteness like mm -hmm. do you consider that person white right do you consider that like I don't think... white like but if you put them in the countries of Palestine oh it immediately becomes a conversation about anti-blackness I I think in um it would there would only be certain kinds of questions right mm -hmm. um because at this point Jewish people are even though we have active white supremacists. Mm -hmm. Uh, who are incredibly anti-Semitic. They don't like anything that's not quote-unquote Aryan whites, right? Mm -hmm. um, even though we have that still existing, Jewish people have been absorbed mm -hmm. into whiteness um, at this point enough for them to be, to kind of fall in line with it. I think if person, especially if a person is like from Israel yeah. and mm -hmm. comes to the United States. A person from Palestine if they quote unquote look Arab, mm -hmm. I think they could also fall in line with the social politics of America where sure. we are anti, uh, what do you call it? Anti-Arab, anti-Muslim, yeah. whatever. Anything anything that we perceive to be Muslim, mm -hmm. we're anti that. Because yep. of, of the whole war on terror and everything, mm -hmm. especially after 9-11. Yeah. Um, and I, I was, I did come to the understanding um, that there was a time where, you know, people who were Arab weren't necessarily considered like quote unquote a minority like they yeah, could be yeah. part of the whiteness oh, yeah. but oh, now yeah. not as not as straightforward even no. though there are plenty of people like I was going to school with a girl who's in one of the sociology classes that I took who was talking about how she puts white on her paper even though she's from Egypt I was like that's literally Africa yeah <laughs> 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 right, I, like, well, I don't know yeah and, and I thought 
Now, I, we like off mic, like I talked to you about before, I was like, that doesn't sit right with me. I, I, I think that people who are choosing to be white, when you have anything else to attach yourself to, that is an active choice of violence. I think you're choosing to align yourself with violence. You've seen what white people do in this country, including to people who come from your group. So why are you choosing to be white like in that way? But that goes back to that whole concept of people who are not necessarily quote unquote white absorb like willingly participating in what it means to be white Mm -hmm. being white operatives yep so in that sense whiteness won't be abolished Mm -hmm. i i and i think that that's um that that scares me because like so we could all come to this conclusion that whiteness as a social construct is positioned entirely to uh prevail against everything else that it negates mm-hmm. anything non-white any one non-white if we can come to that conclusion and try to get rid of whiteness um it's gonna have to take place on multiple levels yeah. including that level where a person who is quote-unquote poc um is able to uh, to operate within whiteness mm-hmm. and then gatekeep it yeah. if they so choose because and it's been beneficial to them to some extent. That's why we're asking for, a, like, Black Liberation is asking for a Black and Indigenous remake of society where Black and Indigenous people are at the helm and getting to choose autonomously what the future will look like. Obviously, by factoring in, like, you know, the uh, perspectives and needs of other, like, you know, ethnic groups, but ultimately remake it. So you can't even, like, even if we got to a situation where all white people decided to, like, immigrate back to Europe, which is like, all right, peace. We realize we can't do this anymore. We're, you know, canceling this season of America. So we're <laughs> heading back, right? It was just, you know, POCs left in, the, in its country. It would have to be, as you said, saying, a situation where it is black and brown people making decisions about the transformation and what it would look like. Because otherwise, and that also means we specifically have to talk about things like, really just speaking of the conversation will be about reconstruction, mm-hmm. truthfully. Truthfully, going back there and realizing, all right, what does this land look? Why does this land look the way that it does? It's the way that it does because we took land from, from indigenous people. All right, the first thing we gotta do is get land back to indigenous folk, and mm-hmm. then then we can talk about like freeing the land and putting black people in communes and building up agriculture and the, the living in ecological justice for the world again. That is like the that's the baseline we gotta start, and then everything after that that follows is a cultural conversation mm-hmm. that we're gonna be having about the history of the harm that has been done, how we're gonna repair that harm. And all of that has to happen. The world, the America that we have now would not, it's not tenable in this situation at all. If we were to do that, as we, I, I am someone who, and I, we don't care about reparations, right? I, I am someone who, you know, works for, works on the, the project of building a culture of reparations. I am someone who very much believes in it. I am someone who wants it and thinks it's the only way forward for this country to exist. And I am full, 100% believing that when we were to achieve reparations, which I want us to, I'm going to push for us to do so, we would be in a better place. This country would be able to heal and to actually have something closer to what it says that it's built on. Mm-hmm. I am also a realist. I am also someone who looks at the past results of... I also look at Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. I also look at January 6th. I also look at the very, very real tangible examples that show... But this country will not do that unless it is dragged kicking and screaming and shooting and stabbing. 
And so I am not super confident that we will last that long. I think that we're going there inevitably. I think that the reckoning for the United States is coming no matter what. What that looks like and whether or not we're going to survive it is a totally, those are two separate questions for me. Um, and I bring that up just to say that I think that that is where the conversation about like dealing with whiteness comes into, which is do we let the American plantation exist as it does now? If we, doesn't matter how many, you know, reparate, you know, sensitivity trainings we, we, we have, we, we mandate, it doesn't matter how many, Not sensitivity you know, training. <laughs> I mean, like, I think that, like, no matter what, like, you, like, I, I am, I am very much of the idea that you can have people who really believe in something, who are individually strong and, and ideologically committed to ideas, but if they participate in an apparatus that is hostile to that goal, you will never actually achieve, achieve what you want. If you have a, 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 an organization where 100% of 100 of your, your employees all want a better world, if you're working for the grind people in the hamburger machine, it's gonna be a ham, grind people in the hamburger machine until you take apart the grind people in the hamburger machine. It's not gonna be anything different. Like, you cannot get compassionate. It doesn't matter how many compassionate prison guards you have. Prisons will still be prisons. Right. So it doesn't matter if they're, you know... So forget the sensitivity training. Yes. But that's that's the thing, okay, about um, people who are in our situation, right? Mm -hmm. we're, we're young, we are curious, and, and pr relatively involved. I, I would say more you than, than me. Mm -hmm. I feel like uh, my involvement has been... Uh, I've been playing the fence a little bit. I'm like, mm -hmm. I'm going to be a teacher and like see, see how things unfold. Mm -hmm. um, but... So I actually think being a teacher kind of the front line of this, particularly in this conversation about critical race theory. Right I think now. I think so, <laughs> I, I, but I think that uh, for me, I, I, the reason why I say it's like being on like like the the fence a little mm -hmm. is because I feel comfortable enough to just sit back and observe. Mm -hmm. um, and in this in in the kind of in the same way that uh, the guy who I was telling you about, who's from Ireland, who is he is the co-founder yeah. of. Uh, the commoner, the media oh, source yeah. that I'm writing okay. for. Mm -hmm. He was saying we, we were we were agreeing that uh, that academics need to take a more active role in activism, right? Mm -hmm. I feel like um, I I have in some ways, but not in every single way. Like you mm -hmm. know, like I haven't made that my business because I've made analysis my mm -hmm. business, yeah. research my business. Um, but the thing is. At some point, the activism stuff has to come too, and I mean, like, it all also depends on, like, it's subjective. It depends on how you look at it. Like, because yeah. teaching could also be a way of being an activist. Mm -hmm. You have to, people have to know. So, somebody, if you've been doing the research, looking things up, you can lead somebody to to looking into these things and then come to conclusions about it themselves as well, mm -hmm. and then maybe um, convincing them that you know this is probably this is the way that we should be looking at things so that this is like you know so the world can be a better place or whatever, right mm -hmm. ultimately however i feel like um because because of the 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 emotional response that i've had to being a teacher and as opposed to being like i guess i would say like huey you know, mm -hmm. like it's been like okay, like it, it feels like I'm a little more on the fence because I'm not. Yeah, I'm yeah. not like I don't have those staunch convictions like he has. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I mean, I think that in part that's just 
some I also think that it's also positioned area as a teacher, you aren't supposed to tell you aren't supposed to prescribe, right? Exactly. You're supposed to give just, tools to your students. Right. Be like, okay, so what do you make of this? Yeah. Which I'm sure you're gonna have, at least if it's hopeful, hopefully you have a myriad of different perspectives on, on any individual topic. Mm-hmm. Um if you want to circle back because I wanna know I think I took you off your track about like what people in our position. Okay, yes. So people in our position, you were talking about the, you use the, like the meat grinder metaphor, right? Mm -hmm. What happens is people start to give us opportunities and we practically have to make money, blah, 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 right? Um, You have to be participant in our society in a very particular way. Mm -hmm. People see that potential sometimes and they're like, and especially they see you start questioning it and stuff like that. Like you're just, the next step usually is for them to find a place for you within that system. Mm -hmm. Like, that lady who I referenced to earlier, Corey Shake, who mm-hmm. was telling me about how, or excuse me, she was speaking to uh, everybody at the brunch mm-hmm. um, and saying like, okay, the problem is not that the global South is always constantly being taken advantage of and that maybe the United States should play a different role in that, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that China isn't playing by Western rules. Yep. Right? Afterwards, when I asked her some questions about that, I was like, what's what's the deal with that? Like, why, why aren't we confronting the issue that all of these other countries um, are considered like China, Russia, pick a, pick a nation in Europe, mm-hmm. particularly the northern ones. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, yes. What's the, what is it? Uh, and then the, the United States, right? Yeah. All of those countries that like make up the G7 or whatever. Mm-hmm. Why is it that we constantly get to take advantage of the global south? Mm-hmm. Instead of answering my question directly... She she was like, you know, you should be a diplomat. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I would just be working for the state that's doing yeah. the thing. Like, yeah. So that's what I feel like constantly happens. Like, it's just like we're working for the Democratic Party. Did I love it? No. It confirmed a lot of my preconceived notions mm-hmm. already. Um, and that's not to say I wasn't grateful to have had the opportunity but what the opportunity taught me was that it was kind of an opportunity for me to experience what do you call it there wasn't even confirmation bias because that's too dismissible it was it, to experience the truth mm-hmm. and it's gonna do the machine's gonna do what the machine's gonna do yep. and you're just supposed to play a part in it and if you try to like it's like trying to make a relationship work or make, make two people compatible who mm-hmm. aren't compatible and it's like okay this person has an entirely different set of goals like they may be attractive and like seem like everything that I want, but they don't have the same values as me. Mm-hmm. See your way out of it. Yeah, it's supposed, it's supposed to be rage against the machine, not work incrementally inside of to a formula machine. Because that right. doesn't fit on a T-shirt. Um, but also just because, like, ultimately speaking, like the the design is different, right? Apart from the very like practical daily aspect, like it's gonna take a lot of your time, right? Particularly nonprofit work. Will take a lot of your time, a lot of your time. It's taking a lot of your free time, or your quote unquote free time. Particularly in this age of like remote working, there's the line between what is considered politics, personal, and professional doesn't exist. It's not a thing. We should get away from the idea that there is any separation. Yeah. It does not. It should exist. You should be able to at least be able to keep personal and professional separate. You cannot do that. Mm-hmm. Once you bring the political in, political is personal. You immediately abolish those lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for people in our situation, like, I'm actually grappling with this idea right now because I think that the nonprofit that I work for, like Truth Down Project and, and the Grassroots Reparations Campaign, 
I think that if you're going to go in, if you're going to try to do this, right, if you're going to try to use a nonprofit industrial complex in it, like, or be a part of it in a productive way, the organization that I work with for is one of the rare examples of where that is possible. But even in that organization, it's still a job. It's still taking up my time and taking me from specific projects I might otherwise want to do. Um, not only because it's not even a negative way, it just does. Like you choose, you choose what your investment in your time is, and you're fine that sometimes that puts you in a position where you aren't able to necessarily respond to things as quickly, right? You like I remember, like the love examples, like I, when I was working for the you know the, camp, the Democratic campaign, there was a period of time where the, when the uprisings, the uprising popped off literally the same day as uh, like PAs, uh, like when their primary was ending. So I was stuck inside making lots of calls about something that like at the time you could argue was important, but ultimately like was not at all connected to what, actually not like, in, in, not even ultimately, just in general, was in no way connected to what was actually actively happening in the streets at that time. It doesn't mean the work was entirely useless. I'm not, I'm not arguing that. It doesn't mean that the work was entirely, it certainly felt at the time to be almost absurd but uh, even I, while I understand its utility at this point, um, or at least I understand, I understand the logic behind it, it's a very palpable example of the fact that you are on a totally different political track, right? When you are talking about mail-in ballots and, you know, voter laws and, you know, filibusters and parliamentarians, that puts you in a, first off, puts you in an entirely different headspace than the normal American who is mostly worried about trying to put food on their table, getting to their job without getting sick and getting home without getting pulled over by cops. That is what is in most individuals' minds. And I'm not saying even on our minds, but in a much less theoretical way mm -hmm. for most major Americans. And the way that they engage with politics is not the way that the political passing engages with politics. No. And I think that if you are talking about what you can do, ironically, here's the, here's the other issue, right? Um, if you're talking about what you can actually do, to use your position to encourage, you know, like the, you know, the grassroots organizations to encourage, like the actual political, I really like actualization of the people that you say you're there for. It's actually to get rid of your job. It's actually to to, to take away the hierarchy that that comes with your job. Academics, in reality, should be trying to abolish academia as we know it. They should just be getting rid of it because right now it stands as a way. To essentially stratify our society mm -hmm. and create individuals like as we talked about like i know you, you, you took issue with like early uh boy uh talking about the talents of 10 right yes like, that like that idea that we need a, a a class of people that will be designated to think for us or to be the best of us a team of the crop and we'll send them we'll send them forth and they will represent that is a terrible plan if you actually want to see massive change for minorities because those kinds of people will actually be the first ones to be turned around and used as a reason, not only an example of why it can work, why things are, why things can get better, and used as a buffer to keep from actual, realistic, democratic change from to be made. Because you're filtering through a representative. The, the libertarian argument against representation and for direct democracy is the idea that you cannot be actually represented by a person. No one can represent you. It literally can't happen because you're you and no one else can tell you uh, what is best for you as well as you can. 
So why even try to create a situation where someone has to speak for you, right? You want to break down that, that stratification. You want to break down that hierarchy. Um, but nonprofits, just, are, are just because they're not, they're, you are say called nonprofits doesn't mean they still have a profit motive. And that doesn't mean they still aren't interested in keeping themselves afloat and encouraging themselves to continue. The same way the state does, right? Same thing with these parties and these other organizations. They are designed to continue. They are designed to get their structure going. And if that's the case, then they're built in a way that would make it untenable to get rid of them if you're in a situation where they have been essentially made obsolete. And unlike a lot of situations, like I love the interest action, right? Um, I also recognize that the way that they used to operate back in the 90s maybe isn't the best option anymore. Maybe, maybe we need to move on to something new and our resistance will look like something new in the future. But if I'm a part of that thing, then I want that thing to continue. I'm only going to operate ways that not only keep it going, but also keep my position in it going. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm committed to. And that's the internal tension that is not always talked about. Because academic groups, or academic ac academia and nonprofits want to essentialize themselves. And that is means they are thinking about themselves first, even if they are for the best option or for the best mission generally. Mm -hmm. They want to make themselves indispensable to revolution without realizing your actual role in revolution is actually not to make it, it's to facilitate it, to facilitate it through others. I don't know, I feel like I might be getting a bit off course of what we were talking about before, but... No, I think we're on track. I think what I see my role as, and I see our role as, as, you know, people who have these opportunities, is actually uh, to start democratizing our tools and our knowledge and our information and disseminating out as far as possible. Mm. One of the things that the left has been talking about is the fact that it's essentially non-existence in the 2020 uprisings. Um, either whether it's, you know, I mean, from the anarchist left all the way up to social democrats all the way to, like, you know, the establishment, like, Democrat, like you know, blue, down, blue dogs. They all recognize and are kind of disconcerted, as they should be, that they really had no plan. Now, the Biden wing of the party wants to basically bury it. They want to forget that ever happened. They want to essentially quiet down the radical left mm -hmm. and bring people back into the center. You said Biden, right? Yeah, I the guess. Biden wing, yes. the, the, yes. the similar wing, the Met generation. They want to forget it because it is problematic for them. Mm -hmm. The social democratic wing wants to actually activate that. They want to use that as a, as a mobilizing point to then become an insurgency inside the Democratic Party. Right. That's what they would like to do. But it doesn't change the fact that they aren't really actually speaking to half of the things that those people want, right? Like, they aren't, they are not, they were not the origination of the abolish the police, right? And most of them actually don't believe in abolish the police. They believe in maybe, maybe defunding the police. And even that has actually has some problematic aspects to it that I've had to reckon with. I still believe in it, but I, I, at first and foremost, are abolitionists. Mm -hmm. And I recognize that, you know, defunding, defunding just means defunding. We defund schools all the time. Doesn't mean we don't have schools. Right. Doesn't mean they don't have some you know, effects as they exist. So, same things should be understood with the police as well. And then, on the other end, especially, you go into, like, what you consider, like, the post-left, or the autonomous left, or the uh, left, like, you know, socialist left, like, actual socialist left, you're dealing with a situation where they are essentially non-existent. They weren't, PSL was not at the uprising. They didn't burn down the fifth precinct. They weren't there um, when that happened. They were all around, like, loosely, but they weren't, like, they weren't, you know, hosting marches. And when they were, they were engaging in not always the best tactics. 
in tactics that alienated them from the rest of the people who were out there, either because they literally had not proven themselves or because they were actively trying to swoop. Same thing with people here. There were like reports of like people who got jumped because they were white, you know, um, they were white militants out in the streets of black people and these black people had never seen them before. And so they were looking at them side eye like, why are you dressed in black and chanting about killing cops? You must be an op. I'm gonna just run you out so we don't have to deal with you anymore. And that's really on the white left for not establishing themselves with these communities. And so when these things pop off, people know they can count them. What's interesting is that made that immediately brought me back to the other um, the other part of our conversation where uh, which might have been off mm-hmm. um, off record as well, mm-hmm. but where we were talking about how this sense of allyship or whatever, or not allyship, we were just talking about gentrification Mm -hmm. and how there's a lack of a feeling of community amongst white people, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Because usually when there is community, like white communities, it's like suburban Mm -hmm. uh, and that suburban-esque thing is oftentimes all about like social policing and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. which is why you have the the HOA and you have the Mm -hmm. like the rulers to check and see how tall people and grass are and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Not to say there aren't standards for every neighborhood, because yeah, sure. I'm the grass outside my house is supposed to have been cut, right? <laughs> yeah. But it's still not the same. Like it doesn't. There's no culture to it. There's no uh, connection, no genuine connection between people. A lot of the times, it's just like uh, operating like a what was the term we used earlier? Project, mm-hmm. a white project, and that's it. Like. Not the projects, but like, oh, you know, yeah, where yeah. the objective is just to have social order. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I may have lost my train of thought, but that is essentially what I was thinking of the moment you said that. Yeah. Can you Whereas repeat? Whereas, like, basically, yeah. they, I think maybe what you're trying to, what you might be getting at is like, they are the left, it would be the white left, is essentially... Right. They're they're on their own page, um, and it's gonna, it's coming, it it gives the appearance that there's a very top, I guess you could say that it is, a very top-down approach Mm -hmm. to uh, dealing with problems that they've noticed other people face. It's like, okay, so let's take it to the streets, but like, it's really just me and my little group of people who have achieved what we might call some sort of enlightenment Mm -hmm. um, without really communicating with the people who we now kind of share a community Mm -hmm. with um, or we share space with. Mm -hmm. uh, But we we are separate from as far as as a community goes. Um, And that can be for a number of reasons, including the one that we talked about earlier where some white people, even if they are liberals and this, that, and the other, they're scared of black people. And if they do like black people, it's only a certain type of black people mm-hmm. who they find digestible. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing that people who even feel like they're on, they're fighting the good fight or whatever need to confront them themselves, within themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that concludes my thought. And I think when they, when they do have that fight within themselves, they get to get back in the situation where they realize, well, I can't. I cannot keep doing this, right? Like, I have a lot of conversations with my one good friend who talks a lot about how being a caseworker was probably what radicalized him the most. Because he was doing, he was working for the state and trying to, in ways that, like, as a social worker, would tend to be supposed to be, your whole portion is to help people you're dealing with. What you recognize, that you actually become a tool first, really, to surveil your, 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 your case, your, 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 I don't forget the term for like the case that someone takes for uh, individuals. When you're a caseworker, um, you 
or they're arrested because your whole thing is that you need to make sure that they're on the street and they're out there not, you call the cops, right? You may not be a cop, but you work directly with cops. Already, you're not offering each other great, sorry. But I want to know on that, like your whole structure is about trying to essentially, like a lot of what capitalism and what capitalism is built on is around the idea of not solving problems, but hiding them. Mm. Either you entirely, you keep them out of public eye entirely, or you imprison them. Right. That's how Because quite literally, if it don't make money, it don't make sense. Yeah. In a capitalist society. Mm-hmm. So if this isn't making me money, these people having these problems, put them in jail. That'll yep. make me money. Yep. And so that not is not what someone gets into the case court for. It's not what you do social work for. No. But you're still gonna be in a position where that is what ends up happening as a result of what you're doing. And no matter what good will you do as a part of that, it's always going to be, like, it's like, it's honestly like being a cop, right? I know there are cops who, who, like, help people, right? They will go out and get water for people who are, like, you know, uh, like, thirsty, and they will, like, you know, stop and, like, change for those taillights. I believe it, right? But I also know that every time a homeless encampment gets sweeped, cops are there. I know that every time, you know, a cop, someone gets beat up, and, like, people are, you know, videotaping, it's a cop who's pushing the phone away. Mm. It doesn't mean that the individual cop is a bad person. It seems that their job inherently puts them in a position. Hey, hey, even when a cop is just driving down the street, that's still traumatizing for someone who's been brutalized or has family brutalized by the cop. The cop hasn't mm. even necessarily done anything. He's existing. Their actual existence is, is a threat. It's an act of violence. Yes. There's an act of re-traumatization for communities that are occupied. Right? Like, even as existence of a threat, even when cops aren't there, right? Like, hey, I'll, I'll give an example, right? Like, um, before the uprising, back when it was like really cool, this was back in like December 2019, I want to say, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I was like, you know, waiting to watch, I think it was like, some debates were coming up. And I went and I was, you know, sitting on the waterfront in Harrisburg, and I went to this one, um, like, stoop to like just kind of get out the cold. Mm-hmm. And I remember walking and just sitting there. Now it's a public area, right? Anyone can go into this building. It's not anyone's. You know, like individual, like porch. I'm not in like I'm not like it's a right. it's apartment. It's a part, lobby, and I go in and I'm wearing my punk jacket. I'm wearing my like band tee, and I'm wearing my skateboard. I'm not bothering anyone, but this guy comes in, or his first his wife comes in, sees me, gets a little startled. I guess. Oh I'm sitting there. I'm not doing nothing. Um, and she can go see me, and I basically go, hey, I'm waiting for my friend. She doesn't know who I know is there. She's no way for her, right? And so she just kind of sees me, kind of just a little, oh, okay. And then shuffles in. And at that moment I go, I just like, my head was like, this is going to be a problem. The way mm-hmm. she just minded, this is going to be a problem. I know enough white people that this is going to be a problem. And so later her white, her, her white husband comes out and starts talking to me, like, hey, you got to go. Doesn't tell me why I'm here, doesn't ask me any questions. It is maybe like 29 degrees outside. It is brisk out there. And I am like, yo, but you really gonna send me out into the cold right now, in the middle of winter? Like, really? Like, yeah, you, you gotta go. And the only reason I left is because this man was a little scrawny, like nothing. I, I couldn't ignore him, right? And I was gonna be leaving anyway, too. It didn't really matter. But the reason I had to be really was just the fact that, like, a cop might get called, and I don't look my presentable black self right now. I don't look like the Eagle Scout that I am. I don't look like the person with the ch- like, you know, the church boy that I that I used to be. Like, that's not what I looked like at all. Right. Like I, I couldn't, uh, oppose, I, that, that was not what, what it presented. All that's because of my blackness. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's what a cop's going to see the first time he's called. And that joke about like white people calling the cops and they call managers is entirely true. Had I stayed there, I probably would have had interaction with the police. And if that would happen, I might have not left my life mm-hmm. or I would have left with, you know, like, like damage and trauma. Right. That is also, that is just the inherent aspect of being in this position. 
It's the same deal when it comes to CPS, right? Like Child Protective Services. Do I think we need to have apparatuses to protect our children? Of course. Right. I also know that, that people hold CPS like a threat over people's heads, yes. particularly over poor people, or particularly over black people, as a way to get a specific outcome out of them. Mm -hmm. I also know that uh, ambulances, we need ambulances, of course, yes. But do I also know that the threat of not having a healthcare also weighs heavily over people? And so they're in a situation where they are bleeding out on a, on a sidewalk, they are also traumatized by the fact that they can't pay? Yeah. Do all those things should exist. All the things should exist in the way and should be, people should have access to it, except with the exception of the police. But that doesn't change the fact that inherently their position does violence. Yes. Uh, it, I, and it I would agree. Function. What's funny is one time, um, there I had a couple of like, I had one run in with a cop, like very specifically, like I was, I had lost my mom mm -hmm. and we were like, this is when we were living in Lansdale. Uh, and I went to go like run to my aunt's house and mm -hmm. the cop chased me on the street. Now I don't know what this guy was doing. I didn't mm -hmm. know he had come to help at all. Mm -hmm. But you know, I, I'm, I'm coming in, into this with the prerequisite that cops are not your friend, mm -hmm. not if you're black anyway. And I was like, oops, that's me, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? So I was like, and I've never been in trouble. Mm -hmm. It's really funny because like when I was telling my friends about that, like it was like, it was probably like elementary school or whatever. She was like, I just don't get it. You never do anything wrong. So I don't know why you'd be scared of cops. And I was like, um, it's kind of like an inherent issue, I guess. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like, it's like, I, I associate them with not just trouble, like generally, mm -hmm. but abuse of power. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd really just rather not deal with it. Mm -hmm even as somebody who doesn't get in trouble, blah, 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 blah. Like, I don't, they don't know that. And sometimes they don't care. Mm -hmm. Most of the time they don't care. We've seen that. Yeah. We've seen them not caring actively. Mm -hmm. So why would I want to engage? Like, well, I wouldn't trust that. Mm -hmm. Like, first, it's a stranger first, but then it's also like a, a stranger with power. Like, oh no. No, yeah. And it's like lack of accountability means that they are essentially, like they can do anything they want to do. And you do not have recourse because if you run, they can hurt you. They, or they can put you up for that, and that's another crime. If you, uh, you know, hit them back, that is a, a, a huge crime. That is one of the like most dangerous crimes you can commit, right? Um, not just because it's like, you know, later aspect, but just because of how they might treat you at the moment, right? Um, it's why it's so laughable to me when people are like. Well, why didn't why why didn't that person just stop or stop resisting? Like why didn't like you know why don't they just listen? It's like well, I don't know, man. Like that cop could like take out like take like cocaine out of his like uh, like pouch and tell you to snort it, like and you would just have to do it. Otherwise, like you're gonna get like hurt. Like he can. There have been times when the cops have actually tried to entrap people, mm -hmm. and if you physically resist them, you will get hurt. There is a threat, there's an implicit threat around that. So technically, and they always say, well, no, I always get this thing where it's like, um, well, you know, if you know you're right and you know that they're that they're wrong, why don't you just stop, you know, and then like so sue them later, right? Mm -hmm. First off, we know from qualified immunity, that's almost impossible. So it's like literally it's stupid. That's just shows you don't have to understand the law. But it also that would never fly. Would you say that if that was your daughter? 
Apparently not. You probably want that person to not. You want your daughter to defend herself, and you want that person to not do that. And the only you would not just say, "Oh, just let it happen." Well, why don't you just comply? No, you wouldn't. You would never say that if it was actually you in your own flesh and blood. That would never happen. But they try to make that argument because it's not. A, it's it's an effective override. It's not about trying right. to actually make a relevant point. It's about trying to shut down what they see as not the danger of non-compliance. Right. Like only in that. Only in those kinds of circumstances does your personal agency come into mm-hmm. play mm-hmm. um and only then is it fully acknowledged right but um and then like also your personal sense of personal responsibility right mm-hmm. like it's emphasized there but if you're dealing with police as a structure and not just like because it's not just an individual basis like you're associating that person with the power that they have and like it's not an illusion like you're not you're not just telling you yourself this uh because a cab or whatever mm-hmm. but you're recognizing that this person is a representative of quote-unquote the law mm-hmm. and they announce themselves as such when they do mm-hmm. um and that is the only way that you know this person you don't know them as an individual mm-hmm. yep. you don't know nope. you don't get to know that he's uh somebody's son or mm-hmm. die, all the things that they say when cops do get hurt you yep. know mm-hmm. you don't you don't get to know those things about him. You get to know him as the face of the law. Mm-hmm. And he's here to implement that structure. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Um, so there's no, there's nothing personal about There's nothing interpersonal about it where it's like, no. y'all have a relationship of any kind. Mm-hmm. It's solely about them carrying out uh, a power structure and your sense of agency being um, taken from you mm-hmm. because of that. So it can't be a conversation about what you can do and what you should have done. No. That's straight up victim blaming. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's literally why cops wear uniforms, so they will look the same, right? If they weren't trying to, if they were not trying to use that as a tactic, they would just dress in normal clothes. They would still carry badges and everything else, and maybe have these not marked cars, but you'd be able to see them as Mark. You would see them as, you know, Tracy, right? But that's not the point. The point is not to get a relationship with the police if anything actually oh perfect example of this right so a good example like this is like talking to function of police there's a ongoing uh strike at a mine in Bessemer, alabama right now um they actually just marched all the way up to new york to protest um and one thing that was brought up in the case that's um that strike is kim kelly you know or Grim kim is doing has been doing a bunch of like uh research and like on the ground journalism about it, one thing she brought up was that like the police who were put in charge of the um, strike, right, were people who like kind of know each other, right? They know the striking miners, like they have problem, like they they are. It's a small enough area, a small enough like um, like center, like urban center, or you know like population center that the cop who's you know on the picket line is probably like your like old uh like high school football player like he, like you know old high school like football team uh like coach like he's your or like he's like you know your old buddy you're, you're like your cousin's like dad right like he's like someone like you know if you're just cousin's like dad like it's someone you might know right like it's someone it's a small enough area like these are folk that know each other by face they know each other even if not necessarily like you know personally it's like only like by a couple like extensions removed right so 
they were there was a period of time where like the cops were getting really kind of cozy with the minors, right? Not even cozy, just like cordial, just mm-hmm. nice, just like talking, because they're literally neighbors. And the uh, next like couple weeks after that, like the, the company complained, the money company complained, and brought in state police because they knew the state police would be less uh, cordial with the striking striking minors. They knew they would be less you know nice to them because that's not what the cops are there for they were there to break a strike and so that that's like a, it's like a palpable and like specific example of how the literal function of police is to create a barrier between the community and the state to take away any kind of element of humanity that can exist as a way to bring folk together which is funny that you say that right because mm-hmm. In that class that I was talking about, bless you, I've taken like two classes with uh, with this guy and we had this same teacher for both of them, I think. Mm-hmm. No, I've been, I've taken three classes with him, but he's maintained this, um, this position mm-hmm. and perspective on police, right? So there was this, there's this discussion forum that we were doing and uh, he was saying something about how people need to remember that cops are people and blah, 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 blah. Kind of doing the exact opposite, like deflecting and saying like, it's it's people who are being critical of cops who are forgetting their humanity. Not that that is their function to begin with. That, like you said, when they put on the uniform, it's supposed to be about sameness and it's supposed to be about defending whatever the objective of the state is. If they want that protest to stop, then that's what they should be doing, following orders. Mm-hmm. And that's it. So you're no longer... I don't say Jim Bob or Billy Joe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're not. You're no longer that guy. You know. You're not. Yeah. You're no longer a uh, quote unquote person mm-hmm. that everyone can just meet and know. Or whatever. You're putting on the uniform. You're supposed to be your professional self, and that professional self is supposed to carry out whatever uh, orders the state has given you. Mm-hmm. Your point. I mean, your uh, your example illustrates that perfectly, and I think. Uh, is something I definitely plan on bringing up the next time that somebody says something like that to me because yeah. I think that was like I I I I think that was the perfect it was just the perfect way to put it like like in a real life context like hey like even if you it's not it's it's not the people who are criticizing cops that are dehumanizing them mm-hmm. not that's not how it's working like it's yeah, cops do it to themselves right? It, right you literally chose that job. And, like, and I mean, like, people don't know the the history entirely all the time, um, and cops have, I feel like they've done a significant amount of rebranding, like, you know, they'll bring oh, them yeah. in on kids' shows and stuff like mm-hmm. that and be like, well, we're here to protect you, like, you know, like Sesame Street type stuff, but that's not what's going on there, no. um, and I, I think we need to, you know, maybe talk a little bit about that how as an individual some cops sure they can be good but they're also definitely um bad cops who are fully informed uh with or fully in line with the the form that the structure is supposed to be taking because that's the objective of the structure to begin with mm-hmm. 